what a lucky choice for the last thing to ever be able to see in this world is a loving, adoring face. And from that moment onward, the bond between us changed. This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience in an effort to help us better understand one another. Randy Pierce knows life with eyesight and without. Navigating the world today as a blind man, his life is a testament to willpower and positive thinking. He's a husband, a dog lover, a marathon runner, a hiker, and a motivational speaker. Randy, I recently finished listening to your audiobook, See You at the Summit, My Blind Journey from the Depths of Loss to the Heights of Achievement, a book that you and your wife co-wrote. You were born and raised in New Hampshire, and you're the youngest of three boys. Your sister died at 11 months of age of spinal meningitis before you were born. And you said in your book that your brother Dan is gay. How did your sister's death and your brother's revelation affect the way you think about humanity? My sister's death, as its impact to me directly, was was very low. I mean, I wasn't born, and I'm you know she was the firstborn. How it affected me is the impact it had on my parents. You know, their first child died, and obviously tremendous grief for them. But also, one of the things that can victimize people is there was some blaming. Uh, even though nobody did anything wrong, I think it was easy to look for why something happens. And in the case of my parents, there was some of that that happened, and that fractured their relationship in ways that never fully healed, despite all of their efforts. And, you know, we see that in the world all the time, but in their case, those fractures existed all through our lives. So they had an impact on me uh, as I grew up watching that, um, despite the fact that I, I grew up in a loving home by parents who did love each other and care for each other. And certainly for us, those wounds were so evident that the older I got, the more my insights grew, the more I began to understand some of those those repercussions. In regards to my brother Dan, you know, it was 1976, 1977, that he shared that with our, our family. And I was 10 years old at the time, and I didn't even understand any aspects of it. And the method of sharing was very hard on my family. Uh, The result of that was I knew that he had shared something that hurt my family tremendously. And despite not understanding what it meant to be gay, I began to associate from my parents' approach that, that gay was this terrible, awful thing. Because not only did it hurt my family, but they had some perspectives on what homosexuality meant at that time that were not untypical of the time, that were darker and harder and very unaccepting. And for a long time, I carried some of those perspectives. And those aren't my perspectives of today. I understand why they had those and they grew. I certainly have grown. And, you know, that's one of the lessons I I got to take away from all of this is that the world isn't always the way it's presented. Some things get in before we may understand them and we may want to hold on to them. But the more we learn to examine things, and it's good to always be open to examine it, the more we can open our eyes, ironic given my world, to better understanding and towards better paths of understanding really what's important and how we should approach those things. And my brother Dan is no longer with us. He died in 2005. He was, unfortunately, 
you know, guilty of many bad deeds that had nothing to do with his being gay. That enhanced my associations for a long time. But I began to learn that that were just aspects of his challenge. And I try not to judge him because he was probably under tremendous difficulty with what he was sharing, both in his own wrestling to come out at that time and in how the world treated him during that time. So, you know, I could espouse for a long time on that because I, I both have tremendous empathy for my brother, but I, I also don't free him of accountability that I, I think he always had the opportunity to deal with the challenges and understand that who he chooses to be is still important and being a good person, regardless of how hard the road may be, is important and it affects everything. I saw the impact of his choices and how much it closed out his family and his world. And thus, when I was faced with some other choices that were hard, it made me maybe a little more aware that even in hard choices, I want to think about my response being one of open and, and welcome and inclusion of people to help me along the journey. Let's jump ahead to 1989. You had just graduated from the University of New Hampshire with an electrical engineering degree. You were working as a computer hardware designer at the now-defunct Digital Equipment Corporation. And like a lot of people from southern New England, my late father-in-law, Bob Zlotnick, also worked there, and he had the same degree that you have. You've been athletic all your life, and that year you were in a fencing class. Your instructor noticed that you had a blind spot and encouraged you to immediately get checked out by a doctor. Could you pick up the story from there? Yeah, and, you know, encouraged is a funny way to say it. He kicked me out of class, and uh, I was sort of giving it a, yeah, yeah, you know, you're 22, you're indestructible, so something's a little wrong. I'll, you know, I'll take care of it. He's like, no. He made me call the doctor from his office and go directly to the doctor's office from there. And, you know, I, I walk into a doctor's office here in Nashville, New Hampshire. Dr. Dajianis immediately sees me, and he's, he says, right away, he knows something serious. Um, and, and I remember because his tone brought a, a method of seriousness to me that I didn't have beforehand. Um, he knew my optic nerve was swollen. He knew it was serious and said, you've got to go to somebody beyond me. We've got to get you to Mass General, to a neural ophthalmologist. I don't know what's going to happen with your sight, but we have to treat you today. And he was right. That very day, I was down at UMass uh, Medical Center in Worcester, Massachusetts, and they had the neural ophthalmologist waiting for me because their normally hours were were going to end, and they literally are wheeling me in and a whirl of consent forms because they have to get this medication into me immediately. It's what they think is the only thing that's going to potentially save my vision, and I'm terrified by this notion because it became so daunting and so real so instantly, and. You know, to that case, two weeks later, I'm totally blind in my right eye and I have about half the sight remaining in my left eye when that episode ends. And I'm left with that little bit of vision, that legally blind status that, you know, at 22, suddenly devastated my life. I was feeling very helpless, hopeless, angry, frustrated. You know, none of the emotions I carry with me today, but all of which are understandable in that moment. Do you have any measure of eyesight today, or do you see what I would see as black? 
So I have no, no eyesight, no light perception. I ended up with uh, 11 more episodes, uh, I'm sorry, seven more episodes over the next 11 years. And the final one took the last bit of light perception. So both of my optic nerves are totally dead. But I wouldn't say what I see is black. You know, I describe it often in schools as gray nothing because kids always want to know, what do you see? And, you know, if I imagine something, I can visualize it. You know, if I picture a red rose or, you know, my, my favorite image is to picture the last thing I ever saw because it was a vibrant image of my dog's face resting his head on my knee. But that's easy to visualize when I'm not doing that. What I see is what I suspect you would see if you tell me what's just beyond your peripheral vision. And, you know, you could move your finger to the edge of your peripheral vision. And if you watch that out of the edge and say, what's just beyond it? It's more gray nothing than black. And that sounds like a meaningless distinction, but black feels so empty, harsh. And gray nothing is just, it's not there. It's an absence, not, not a dark negative. When I look at you right now, I see both of your eyes scanning left to right, like you're speed reading. Right. That is called nystagmus. Um, in my case, it's caused by, you know, some of the things we didn't talk about that my neurological disorder attacks other parts of my nervous system. The mitochondrial disease? That's correct. And so the optic nerves were the first nerves that attacked, but it's attacked other nervous systems in my body. And in that is my balance system. So I always feel like the room is spinning. And the more disrupted I am, the more it will spin. And you'll see the speed of that can change. Now, many people who are totally blind will have nystagmus at different levels and different rhythms. Mine is particularly chaotic because of that, that component of basically uh, it's vestibular dysfunction or vertigo. Is that why you would wear sunglasses inside, for example? So maybe. Um, I don't tend to, right? I didn't wear sunglasses when we got together, but there's, there's an aspect of sunglasses that do two things for a blind person. The first is it's protection because while I can blink, I don't close my eyes reflexively. So something that you know, I could bump into might scratch my eye because they won't blink before it hits, which you would have that reflex. So that's protection. But there's another type of protection, which is the social risk management. When people see me, my eyes going back and forth can be off-putting. And when people are uncomfortable, they often aren't at their best. They're awkward, they're unsure, and so they often go silent, which is one of the worst things for me as a blind person. It's better when they're willing to speak up and say hello. But in that instance, if I can get them a little bit more comfortable until we begin interacting, until they learn that you know, speaking with a blind person is the same way you speak with any person, you speak, right? If we do that, I get that comfort and that interaction going more positively. So yeah, sometimes I'll wear glasses to, to help that along. Not because I'm uncomfortable with my sight or lack of sight. I'm totally comfortable with my blindness, but I want to help integrate others smoothly into that process. Functioning independently and being self-reliant is important for a number of people. And you've been legally blind since 1994. You wrote that you were really angry and depressed when you became blind, so I'm wondering, how much of a challenge was it for you initially when you realized you need to start depending on other people and dogs to help you navigate the world? Sure. So first thing, I've, I've been legally blind since 1989. That first episode, instantly legally blind. And I, 94 did what then? So that was the second significant episode. And, that's, okay. and that is when I stopped working at digital equipment. 
And I could have stopped in 1989. I was already legally blind and they would have allowed my long-term disability at that point in time. But I, I didn't want to embrace it. I wanted to keep working. I felt like I could. But at 94, it became so hard to read schematics at all. So hard to read anything. And screen reader technology wasn't where it is today. You know, I, I probably in today's world could have continued some of that work longer even than 94. That's a little distressing to think. Um, you know, I don't find it distressing because I, I love the world I'm at. I love the, the world that I've lived. And those were steps in the journey. I look at it a different way. How exciting that our technology has advanced, that people who now are confronted with that have the opportunity to continue. And I use that technology to great benefit today. But does the lack of independence bother you still? So always did, always does. And so like anything that bothers me, the question is, you know, do I get frustrated? Yes. Do I remain frustrated? Hopefully not, right? I, I have this expression I like to share is that frustration leads to failure. So convert it to curiosity. What can I do? What's the source of my frustration? What's preventing me from being independent? Because usually there are ways to be independent. Now, I don't have to use a guide dog. I can use a cane, for example, and then I'm fairly independent. But using the, the things around us, whether they're our allies, our friends, our pups, that's, that's teamwork. And I don't feel that that's a lack of independence in, in, my, in my approach. Now, I give you it and work with somebody else. So there's a sharing of challenge, but we all do that, right? How many of us are producing our own power? Hopefully more all the time, but how many of us are laying the roads that we drive on? No, it's a teamwork to yes. do all of the things. So it's just where you define it. I do a lot of things independently and I make a decision. What is going to be more efficient? If I do this particular task on my own, how much extra work is it going to take? Is that worth it? Or can I add a lot of productivity and value to multiple people, myself included, by putting that time and energy into something else? Right. I think that the trick that I have to weigh in is, and it's one of my biggest fears, and it really hit in this present times of COVID is, do I feel like I'm a burden or do I feel like I add value to the world? And as long as I can answer that I feel like I'm adding value to the world and that I'm not a burden, but that I'm having people share tasks or pups share tasks in ways that make them feel positive and part of a team, then I feel great about it. I think this interview will clearly demonstrate just how much value you add to the world. You describe in your book how nowadays the smells and the sounds in your environment help you appreciate your experiences. And I often think of you when I'm riding my bicycle. I think of you in those moments when I smell the blooming bushes or the pine in the forest, or I'm listening for the approaching cars. And I imagine for you, those senses you're able to draw from can be just as powerful as sight. Sure. You know, there's a common myth, right, that a, a blind person's senses are all super enhanced. And the reality is, like anything, if you practice using skills, you enhance your awareness and your abilities in lots of ways. But, you know, let's start with hearing. I, I want to get to smell because that one maybe is a difference. But my hearing is no better than it ever was because we can medically test that and have. But the interesting thing is my friends will all tell you, Randy hears everything. Uh, <laughs> my wife maybe says otherwise, but... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> what happens is that I'm not distracted by sights, the right, the visuals aren't there distracting. So I'm focused on all the other cues. So I'm paying attention to all these things around me more. And that's just it. I often ask people, you know, who want an example, if you think about the sounds you hear in your house, if you wake in the middle of a dark, dark night, all the sounds seem louder. Why is your house making so much noise? And the answer is, it's really making all those same noises for the most part during the middle of the day. You just filter them out because your eyes are telling you what you need to know. And I don't filter. When I hear footsteps approaching, I think about the patterns of that footfall so I can predict who it is. Because, oh, wow. Because I can't just look and see. And my friends want That's true. me to be able to say, hi, Christina. So you know Rick's footsteps, for example, or any number of your other friends? Often, right? Now, there are things that can throw that off. And if there's a lot of side noise, I may not pick it up for sure. But in the right environment, you bet I'll know it by those patterns. And then when you get to fragrances, here's where it comes in, is that our olfactory powers are a lot more developed than we think, and we just don't use them. I still remember my very first morning, totally blind, I'm out at guide school, and I'm gonna go our route that day. We have to pick a place to go to that we've never been and navigate there with our guide dog on our own. And I'm in a city that the only time I've been there is to go for this training. So I thought I was gonna be smart and I'm gonna pick a coffee shop because the smell of coffee ought to be an easy find. And <laughs> they knew it was my first day totally blind, so they allowed it. But interestingly enough, there was a hair salon that shared an entranceway. And it turns out hair product has a stronger smell than coffee. I had no idea. And so when I walked down, I went to two wrong coffee shops and I skipped over the hair salon twice before I came back. But what I started to learn is how many scents are out there. And, you know, as I walk here in Nashua, New Hampshire, where I live, I walk down, I can smell what is a hardware store. I can smell, obviously, what are the restaurants. I can smell what is a jewelry store, even the smell of metal. Right. And I obviously I can tell you where Water Street, where they really have needed to work on the sewers for the last 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> but, but those fragrances tell me where I am. And when I walk in my neighborhood, I can tell you where I am by those bird sounds. They have feeders. And they always have more birds. Or maybe they just have a tree in their yard that it makes it popular. And these people plant flowers. So I know I'm on the corner of April. Or, you know, that's, that's important because they now become landmarks. They're the same thing that visually you have to remember if you think of the world visually, right? Turn left at the giant willow tree. Well, for me, it's take a left when I smell the flowers. You wrote that going blind may have been one of the best experiences of your life, as it was the catalyst that motivated you to achieve. Your brother Rick had said that he would give you one of his eyes, if he could. And it might sound like a dumb question, but would you accept that gift? The first thing, obviously, is how can you not be overcome by, by gratitude for the generosity involved in that kind of a gift? I, I think that if I were going to be totally blind, as I am, and he could have one eye and I could have one eye, would I consider it? I, I don't think I would now because I'm so comfortable with my life and I know I can handle the, the adaptation fine. And could he handle adapting to life with one eye? I don't know. But you know, people give away kidneys where you can live happily with one kidney and somebody else can't live. So in that situation... You know, if, if I'm going to lose a kidney and that means it's over for me and somebody wants to give it to me, yes, I could. And similarly, I could give my kidney if it's going to be the difference on somebody's life. 
But if it's not a matter of life and death, then it comes down to, right, how much quality am I getting for how much challenge am I giving to somebody? And in the instance, you know, I, I wish every day that I could see because, right, I've never seen my wife smile and I, I hear it's, it's beautiful. And it is. I haven't ever seen Autumn, my guide dog, that she's got a truly remarkable face because she's a black and tan, which is untypical in the Labradors. But I'd love to see the soulful eyes that she has. That true, that truth doesn't change my comfortable feelings that I have a great life being blind. And if I never see again, I'm going to continue to have a great life. So one of the elements of your great life are all of the dogs you've shared your life with. I'm a dog lover just like you, but dogs really aren't just pets in your world. Let's talk about your first dog, Modi, yeah. who was not a guide dog, but was very special to you nonetheless. Could you share some memories of him? Yeah, Modi, uh, the, the Norse god of courage and berserker rage for uh, an incredibly gentle, beautiful um, rescue boy that we got. Uh, I wanted a dog all my life and because uh, I had dogs growing up. And now I'm an adult and I want a dog. But, you know, the truth is we're not always ready. And I wasn't entirely ready because there's an act of selflessness when you're going to take on the responsibility, a child, a dog, all of that. And they're going to come in and love you just unyieldingly, unquestionably. But you need to be willing to sacrifice some things from them, some things from your life. And I had just gone blind, right, legally, because it was 1990 when we got him. And I was still a little selfish about my, my life because I felt like it was challenged and I was trying to cling to a lot of things. And so I had, I had a great life with Modi, certainly. But I remember how every time I came back, he was always just eager to see me, eager to give me all that, that love and affection. And I, I remember it was one of the first lessons I started thinking about, right? Loved ones should always be greeted with that kind of enthusiasm, right? How many times, you know, a loved one comes in and you're busy with something and you just give a, a casual, you know, hi, you, you know what? Why not show them all that warmth and affection that you actually feel? You're just saying, oh, they know I have it, you know, so I'll, I'll catch up with them later. And I think that when you do that, I think of the joy I felt every time he did that. Why not give that gift of joy to your loved ones every time you have the opportunity? Um, You're right. Dogs do that for you every single time. Yeah. And his giving that to me was important because in my life I was feeling still pretty down. I was not a finished product on this conversion <laughs> to blindness, right? You know, and it's funny, I was, there's seven stages of loss and loss of sight is, is certainly as much a loss as anything. And I, um, I didn't handle all of it well. And I was in some of the denial phase, right? So having that joy introduced was definitely healthy and healing and let me advance to some of the next stages to be able to accept because, you know, part of resiliency involves acknowledging, no, this is hard. This is where I'm at. And despite it being hard, here's how I go forward. So I'll, I'll share that. And then, you know, you asked for, uh, you asked for a couple. So let me give you one more Modi story. Cause I think it's really powerful. Um, <clears throat> you know, my, uh, Modi had a lot of friends, and I'd never had a dog built, build up friends of mine that were also friends of his. And when I had to say goodbye to my boy, which was really tough, I was amazed. We had a little, you know, little memorial for him here at my house. How many people came 
to honor him and just say how much he meant in their life for the greetings he gave them, for the different ways that they'd found to interact with him separate from my relationship with them or my relationship with him. And out in the back of my house, I have a, uh, I have a Miss Kim lilac that I planted on the day that I lost him. And I go out every year on my birthday. That thing is providing lilacs. And I love this tangible bond and connection that we can choose to create so that he's, you know, he's always a part of my thoughts, but I have a physical connection and a, in both place, in both scent and touch to help me connect to him. And uh, that was a gift from my, my brother Rick and his wife Monique. And they gave it in part because he was a part of their life. So it made me realize that these are beings separate from us as well. And they build their own relationships. And that's, I think that's an important thing to realize. Next comes Austin. And he was your first guide dog. Could you share some memories of him? Yeah. So I mentioned earlier, right, the last thing I ever saw. And that's because when I went totally blind, he was with me. I was training for him out in Oregon at Guide Dogs for the Blind, which... Um, you know, just quick newsflash. Yesterday, they just gave me the acceptance letter that I will be receiving a new dog guide from them once they find the right match. But I had to go through an approval process. So. Wonderful news. Yeah, I um, haven't even haven't even shared that in the world yet. But it's you know, it's definitely exciting. Um, it will be a while still because the match process is is long. But that means somewhere out there, there's a puppy growing and working to be ready to take all that energy into a whole host of adventures together. Um, but Austin was a golden retriever and we had been matched up and we had started the bonding process and it was going great. Our training was solid, but I had started to have another episode. And when that happens, they give me a medication called solumedrol, which is a high anxiety inducing medication. And think of the anxiety you're already feeling when you're going to go and lose your sight. Mm -hmm. And so I'm under a lot of stress. I'm training across the country. And he is at my feet while we are riding a bus. And we're taking a bus to practice how you would ride a bus with a guide dog. And we're going to get off all our whole class. And we're going to have to rush to catch a train back to where we started so that we'd get practice with a bus and a train. And it's in Oregon, so it's raining, of course. And I am looking at my instructor. And my sight literally squeezes closed. And I didn't have much. It was a little blurry. And it was very small, small field of vision. And it closed out on me. And I remember the emotional well up, partly from the medication, partly because that was it. That was the last thing I was ever going to see. And he jumped up, sensing my emotional surge, and he put his head on my knee. And I pointed my head downward, looking where, if I could see, I would see his head. And my vision opened up, like just almost like it was squeezing open again. And I saw his loving, deep, soulful brown eyes looking at me. It closed. And the tears began to flow and it opened up one more time, like just, just one more peak. That's what you saw. And it closed. And I think what a lucky choice for the last thing to ever be able to see in this world is a loving, adoring face. And from that moment onward, the bond between us changed. You know, he knew that something powerful had happened. In fact, you know, rushing to get to the train. And I share this in the book, so you probably know this story, but he and I rushed. We stopped right between the uh, edge of the train and the train platform. There's a small space. 
and it was wet and it was metal and it was slick and he stops and normally I could anticipate that because I had a little bit of sight before. This is the first time I'm totally blind. He stops, I stop and slide because I had no anticipation and I was probably walking a little more awkwardly because of this first totally blind steps. And as my foot slides, it dips down between the train and the platform and I slide down into my thigh and I get stuck and it scraped and you know, just overwhelming it. From that point on, he became so crisp and so careful with me. And that caution became skill as we learned to read each other. And then we became a team that traveled the country successfully. And you have a bleeding heart in your yard uh, to yeah. remember him. Yeah, I do. And there's, there's the unfortunate part, right? I mean, we lose our pups. They live so much shorter than we do. And what's fortunate in that is that they can provide so much intensity in that short life that, you know, we can remember them so powerfully. But Austin uh, got cancer when he was only seven years old. He had a cancerous tumor growing on his heart. And in his case, that tumor didn't cause him any pain, uh, but we realized it the day that it literally split his heart. And so the bleeding heart, I remembered them from my youth. And I thought it was very appropriate. And the Modi tribute had so much power to me. I wanted something similar for Austin. So in the front of the house, we, we have a bleeding heart. And it, all summer long, it blooms. And kind of fun this year, it's never happened before, right? There's a stone ring in the front of the house that's several levels high. And that's where it's planted. And a rabbit nested and gave birth inside the, the collection of bleeding hearts. And they're still living in it today. So uh, I, this first year, I haven't watered it and haven't gone out and touched the flowers every day because I don't want to disturb the rabbits that are nesting in it. That's a great story. Yeah, I think you'd be good with that. So third in line is the mighty Quinn. And I'm sitting in your meditation room with you. There's a brown tapestry on the wall. And there are words. And he is with his harness sitting on a pile of rocks with the mountain in the background. And it looks like I also see Braille on the tapestry. Yeah. So uh, my friend Kevin Gagnon and his wife Beth uh, made that and used Pearl to be the Braille dots so that I'd be able to read the words that were written. She stitched them into that. And uh, they're both dog lovers. They have a whole host of dogs themselves, some of which Quinn uh, had gotten to meet, like their their boy Owen. But... uh, just the outpouring of love for my dogs has always been tremendous because I, I live very publicly. I do a lot in the communities and, you know, my dogs are always a part of me wherever I go. And so they build these, these bonds with people. And, and Kevin particularly, we, we had met at a restaurant at the city room in downtown Nashua. And every time I went, he wanted a chance to spend some time with Quinn. And, you know, Quinn touched a lot of lives. And that's just just one of the many signs of it. What are some of your best memories? He's the one who you began hiking with, right? Yeah, Adventure Dog. He got me hiking again in part because, I mean, he was taught to stabilize me because I was vestibularly challenged, as we talked about. I had been in a wheelchair just before my time working with Quinn. So the only thing different from Quinn and a typical guide dog is he knew to balance me if I lost my balance. And I was walking with a support hiking stick when I started with him. And we got so good. It's like riding a bike, right? If you go real slow, it's harder to keep your balance. If you get a little bit of speed, it's a little easier to keep your balance. 
Well, the more I walked with Quinn, the better my balance got. Practice makes progress. And the more I walked with Quinn, also, the, the more healing was taking place in my brain and the faster we got, and I stopped needing the hiking stick. And right after I put it down, I started walking everywhere. And what I learned, Quinn loved the woods most of all. Mines Falls here in Nashua. And that's what led us to the mountains. And he loved the mountains. And that's why I said, well, you know what? I, I gave up hiking when I went off to college, but I really, you know, when I went blind, I didn't even consider it. A blind person couldn't hike, right? Those are the mentalities that I had cast off. Of course, a blind person can do anything they want to do. In fact, all of us should be able to do anything we want if we're willing to problem solve and persevere, really. But what are the pathways? Figure out what's really stopping you. And, and Quinn wasn't of the opinion that anything should stop us. But uh, Adventure Dog, Mount Welch Dickey, we had some tough, there's some slabs up on, on Welch that are a little challenging. And there was a couple of points where him guiding me, we weren't sure about. So I put my hands to the trail and scrambled up and we had to call him. And there's a, the way we went that he could take or there's the shortest route to me. And Quinn wanted to be with me, tending my safety. And I remember being with the team and hearing this, oh, Quinn, no. And what had happened is there was a little canyon and he had analyzed the situation and he jumped backwards onto one rock to get a, br a brace so that he could leap over the canyon onto the slab and scramble up to us. And nobody <laughs> thought he was going to make it. And, and nobody expected him to make that jump. They thought he would just go the way that I had gone. So his uh, fearless spirit is part of what I remember. Next is Autumn, your female lab, who's with us here today. She's your current guide dog, but she's retiring she is right they you know they choose when they want to retire and like any of us right we we work and we get tired of work eventually we reach a point as we as we age i know some people are probably tired of their job sooner than that but she's been at her job working hard for you know six six to eight years is what they expect the average working career and she's been at it about seven and so it's it is her seventh year and it's reasonable and COVID has been tougher on her so i get those aspects. And so she's going to get to stay with me and be the, the well-loved, maybe even a little spoiled family pet after this. But she's still got a few more rounds of work until the new pup arrives. But uh, what I love about her is she's just a joyous burst of energy. Like Quinn was this fierce competitor and she's just like, everything's for the fun and the frolic. <laughs> In addition to the guide dogs, you have a number of friends who help you run, help you climb mountains. Talk about some of those people. Yeah, you know, people are so much the, the important part of our world and the valuing part of our world, right? When you, when you learn, I learned it as a kid, right? We, we learn what's fun and hopefully we'll let that drive us. We then learn what, you know, what we're good at, what we, what we need to work on. And then somewhere right integrated with those things is we, we learn how to work with others. And in that is the real gift, right? Because team, right, is together everyone achieves more. When we learn to work together well, we can do more. When we don't learn together well, the lesson shouldn't be to stop working together. It should be to practice working together in better ways. And, you know, I can't say that every partnership I've ever had with friends has worked out great. <laughs> um, but... You know, I think when we've all earnestly worked at it, we've been able to do a lot more because of it. And I can see the mistakes I've made and hopefully learned from. And I feel really good that, you know, one of the gifts when you help someone, you feel great. 
So find ways to do that. And the corollary is when others want to help you, not as in when you want to take advantage of other people, but when they earnestly want to help you, find ways to say yes, because then you're giving them the ability to feel that same great way you can when you help them, right? And that's that's the whole nature of each helping each other out along the way. And, you know, right now I'm running the virtual Boston Marathon in just about two weeks. My friend Rodney's become my most prolific running partner. And, uh, you know, the fun part of that journey is my wife was at a running event watching him and his boy run really fast. And she's always looking for faster guides because she likes to run me into the ground. And she, she just asked him, she writes like a blind date. She said, would you, would you ever consider guiding a blind man? And, you know, that's how our first connection was made, right? Out of the blue and cold. And, you know, he's one of my best friends. We talk every day because sharing all the miles and, and running endurance events, you get to some raw moments and you a lot of time to talk about all the things that mean things to you, to explore each other's you know lives and, and to build those bonds. And that's, that's what life should and can always be involved with. So your 10th wedding anniversary is fast approaching how has Tracy changed your life? Huh. Uh, it, it's oxygen, right? I mean, at this point, it's it's how I breathe, and it's fully integral in all of my life, right? She's she's wonderful. She challenges me. Um, that doesn't mean always positively. Sometimes she frustrates me, and that's okay too, because when I convert to curiosity, I can sometimes learn that I need a little frustration in my world to help me think about what I need to change or what we need to change. But she's just a great partner, right? She, She's kind, and kindness is the human trait I value the most. She's incredibly competent, a problem solver, and an adventurous spirit. So my zest for for adventure has enhanced and been made you know, more manifest by her. I hadn't gone to Africa and climbed Kilimanjaro or Peru to hike in the Andes until Tracy was in my life. And there's a reason for that, right? So many people give me so much credit for things in my world. And I, if I have a bit of sadness about that, it's that so few realize what a fun- fundamental role she has played in all of the best adventures of my world. Not to mention helping you write the book. Oh, and, and you know, that's a journey too, right? So it was either going to make us a lot closer or tear <laughs> us apart because, you know, I'd, I'd write a draft. And I would send it to her, you know, and the notion was, if ever this is just no good, tell me to throw it out. That never happened. So that's good. But there were plenty of times she sent back and she said, you know, I think you really want to revise this heavily. As you're out in the world, in town or through your home or your backyard, how exactly do you walk with a dog or a cane? What are the cues that you're receiving? Sure. And it that depends on you know what my objective is, right? If I'm if I'm purposeful, like if I'm trying to get to a destination, you know my my guide dog is my favorite method because it's much more efficient. Um, and and I guess to get that, let me tell you what a cane does. A cane is an object detector. You tap along and you find any of the obstacles in your way. So if I'm walking up to the bus stop, I tap the side of the road because there's no sidewalks here, and I sweep the road to make sure there's no obstacle. That means if I go to the bus stop three tenths of a mile from here takes me about 15 minutes with my cane. If it's trash day, it takes me about a half an hour. And if it's trash and recycle day, I should probably stay home. <laughs> right? But a guide dog is an object avoider. 
because they can see them. So they just naturally go around them. You don't have to stop. It's not like the cane where at every trash can, I tap the can, work my way around it, find my straight and go on. They naturally just swerve out and swerve back to go around it for you. So cane 15 minutes or longer, guide dog five minutes for that same walk. Wow, a third. Right. And when I'm using the cane, my focus is on the cane. What was that? Is that the side? Okay, that is the side. Okay, that's the road. It's still clear. That's where my mind is every step of the way, really. And you can get a little bit better as you practice. With my guide dog, they are doing that work. So my brain can be up listening to the sounds, smelling what's around me, thinking about the meeting I'm going to have, or just admiring the work sometimes, right? Just to give praise because it's incredible the things they'll think about and the ways they'll problem solve. And, you know, the more I'm investing in what they're doing, sort of anthropomorphizing, how they're achieving it. You know, I still remember the day after, uh, you know, heavy winds, a hurricane storm had come through and we got tree limbs down everywhere and they have to decide when can you go around this and when can't you? Or, you know, one of the favorite stories, I was coming home, I'm on the phone talking to Tracy as I'm coming home. Now that tells you how confident, right? You don't want to drive while you're on the phone. You probably shouldn't be on the phone while you're using your guide dog, but I'm on my street. So it's when I relax because I know they're going to cruise. There's no, there's no really traffic obstacles. But Quinn stops. That's what they do when there's an obstacle that you can't avoid. They stop and make you find it. So I tap with my foot and splash. Oh, it's a big puddle. Well, we have to go around this puddle. So you usually want to go not into the road, but away from the road to go around. It makes sense, right? Don't go more where there might be traffic. So I say left and he takes a step and then stops. I'm like, okay, I guess we have to go to the road. So I say, go right. He takes a step and then stops. And I'm on this phone the whole time. So Tracy's paused and listening. And I said, how do you want to solve this, buddy? And he crouches and leaps. And I'm like, oh no. So I do my best to leap. And he cleared it with about a six foot jump. I almost cleared it with about a five foot, 10 inch jump from a no, right, no warning. Cool. It, Tracy came home and the road had flooded down in that little dip that you came down coming here to my house. And he'd seen it, blocked the whole road, went snowbank to snowbank. And he looked, he's like, yeah, I don't see a way around this for you. I asked him for a solution, so he provided it, right? Brilliant. I just need to be a little more focused if I'm going to do that. So what's helpful for the public to do to help you? And yeah. what's not helpful? Yeah, the, the most helpful thing is to communicate. To, if you think there might be an opportunity, then ask, Right. And, and the words that I love is, you know, may I help you? Because a lot of times people will assume that, hey, looks like he needs help. I'll give him some help. And here's a really easy example. People will often want to open a door for me. And that's kind, courteous. I, I love courtesy, respect the notion. But like a car door, for example, closed is very safe to me. It's flat. It's smooth to the seam. And I know roughly where the car is as we're approaching, so I could feel that flatness and be safe. If they open that door for me, now there's a corner, and I don't know at what height or what angle, now it's dangerous for me. So they've actually made it harder, meaning to help. Now, if they ask, may I help you? You know, I could say, yeah, would you mind tapping the side of the car so I'll know where it is? That's one thing I might choose. I might say, no, I'm all set. Autumn will take me right to the door. But all of that happens with communication and if you don't, you might do the thing that doesn't help. And, you know, the, the single most common not helpful thing that people do is they want to grab me and pull me to things. And I hear that from a lot of my blind counterparts. And I understand it, right? You see, I'm just missing when I reach 
So all you have to do is grab my arm and you'll pull it that extra distance. But can you imagine being grabbed in the world when you're not expecting it all the time? And I'm, you know, I'm not a small guy. So being grabbed and pulled, if I don't like it, the natural reaction is to pull back. And that's not what we want to do. We don't want to be in this tug of war. So whereas I think you could just miss it. Would you mind if I took your hand? Oh, that'd be great. Thank you. Right. It makes everything smoother. Communicate. Talking. Yeah. We didn't have all these technological tools when you were going blind. What do you use today? What are you doing to communicate with me on Strava, on social media? I know you've listened to my podcast. Right. So, you know, there's there's so many tools these days. And now it's it's the beauty that I get to choose which ones I want to use. And I'm sort of like straight out of the Lord of the Rings. I want one ring to rule them all, which is that I want one device. Right. There was a time period as all these were coming around where I'd carry eight devices and now I have 10 power cords at home. And which one is the right power cord? I do almost everything with my iPhone or my Apple Watch today um, because, it, you know, an app, there's an app for everything. And the accessibility built in is so fantastic. Now, that said, in the business world, the PC still probably surpasses a little. You've got to be able to use Word and Excel. So I do use a PC and the, there's screen reader software on there. Um, but that's stable here at home, right? The software is called JAWS. Kids love that, right? Job access with speech. Um, but, you know, in the technology world, I was sharing with you earlier, I have sunglasses that have bone conductive speakers so that the back of the sunglasses are speakers that are behind my ears that don't make any noise. They vibrate and give me hi-fi fidelity sound, but my ears are free to hear. And my Apple Watch, right? I took a call on my watch through my sunglasses the other day and I felt like I was max smart right I feel like I'm a secret <laughs> agent but you know that's how it works and that's how I can do it when I'm out on a run right I can get all my run data and right there just by a light tap and swipe and you know it's access to everything and that's beautiful including people send me pictures and it will describe the pictures for me if I run it through a quick software panel You've run more than a dozen marathons, including five Boston marathons. In fact, by the time this podcast episode airs, you will have run your sixth Boston, which is virtual this year because of the pandemic. Your best time was 3.50 at Boston, right? 3.50.37. Our mutual friend Dave Salvas has run a hundred marathons himself. Remind me what he often says when people ask what his best time was. He said you're running to have the time of your life, and hopefully I did that. <laughs> that it's not so much what that time was, it's the experience of having run. I mean, I think he cares about time because he wants us to challenge ourselves, right? He wants us to live up to our potential, but not to be so heavily focused on time. Time's a number. Focus on the experience. I've run 5, 10, or 15 Ks, but I've never run even one marathon. What are some of your best memories of running Boston? Unquestionably, it's, it's the people and the support all around it, right? It's, it's about the human spirit. That's what Boston celebrates, not just the elite athlete, right? There's a few of those who toe the line and make some remarkable, you know, runs. But there's so many stories of people who have overcome something to be there or are running in support of causes that are just tremendous and they're just they're everywhere for me that first cause really was you know my boy quinn and uh there was a really fun moment right wellesley college is favorite famous because all all of the wellesley students are out there shouting in support but they also will make signs 
And my first Boston, my friend Greg Hollerman was running beside me. He wasn't guiding me. And he had prearranged with a student and they had made a sign in support of Quinn. So we're going through the scream tunnel and all that craziness is happening that honestly, as a blind guy, we wanted to be as far over to the left to avoid the extra confusion of people slowing down and, and interacting. But Greg just wanted enough awareness. He's like, no, I want to see if there it is. And they had made this loving tribute to my boy Quinn, you know, and you're at the halfway point. And they say, right, the halfway point of the marathon is mile 20 because you're you're just going to start you're at done. the hard part. Yeah. What a fun boost there at the halfway point for me. And then when I did get to the real mile 20, it was pouring rain and it was wind blowing in and Christine was guiding me, Christine Hood. Her husband had guided me for the first half. And I was you know, feeling a little bit of struggle. And she's like, this is the mile you told me you were dedicating to Quinn. And I, I dedicate every mile to someone who makes my life better. But just her remembering that and knowing that gave me strength. Because I think purpose in our life is so important, right? I think happiness is a, is a driving factor in our life, right? People drive themselves for success, right? And, and I think happiness is a better advantage, right? If you're pursuing happiness in all the right ways, you will lead yourself to success. And happiness is really about three things, right? There's there's instant happiness, right? Those are, you know, your pleasures, right? Eating a chocolate bar, a dark chocolate bar might be a pleasure for you, but there's the passions, right? Your hobbies, running and pastimes, however you want to view that. But then there's purpose. And when you have purpose and meaning, you know, for me, the, the charity, that gives you the the energy and the drive to do so much more. And that's what happened to me on Heartbreak Hill when, you know, when she said that. I knew that run was about Quinn. And I remember that surge, right? People talk about the second wind. Well, the second wind of purpose for me at Boston was pretty amazing. Moving back into New Hampshire, you climbed all 48 of the 4,000-foot mountains here in the Granite State in one winter. Yeah. I've done four of those, but... I- only did them in the summer when the weather was great. So share again some memories of your mountain climbing. So, you know, I've, I've, I've been up in so many different seasons and each mountain comes with a different experience each time you hike it, right? What's the old expression? A man cannot cross the same river twice because neither he nor the river are the same. Every hike is going to be different, even if it's the same trail because the group's going to be different, the day's going to be different. Um, and for me, again, it's always the people I'm with, the pups that I'm with that make the experience. But there's some special ones for sure. Uh, 9-11, there's a flags on the 48 experience that happens. And in 2010, we climbed Mount Liberty for that experience. And there, you raise a flag on every one of the 48 just to celebrate the spirit of all the people who give to enable all the freedoms we have in our life, right? All the first responders, right? The EMTs, the firemen, the police, all all of the positives that let us live the lives we get to live. And as we're raising the flag, the man whose flag is brought up is tear-filled as he tells us the story of that flag. He joined the program when it began, but a few years later, he lost his son in Afghanistan And that flag had adorned his son's coffin. And there he is putting the flag up, surrounded by people, and he's he's sad, but he wants the right mindset, right? Don't focus on the loss. He wants to focus on people who believe in the reasons why his son died. He wants to focus, and this, this is meeting a stranger on a mountain and having this experience. And then we all got together and we sang God Bless America 
up on top of Mount Liberty. And I could not have been more proud of my team because first off, they were a bunch of great singers. Um, but the, the hearts and the compassion and the love shared on a mountaintop on a September day, uh, you know, I'll keep that. And then and I use that photo in a lot of my presentations for that very reason. It's where you can put your focus. So that's one moment, one mountain. And I have so many of those moments. You know, I, I remember taking a, a group for an overnight. We're going into the Bonds, which is probably the longest hike that you'll do, right? It's the most remote part of the Pemajawasset wilderness. So we go out, we stay overnight at Geo Shelter, and there's a couple of 4,000 foot peaks around us. And we go and we watch sunset from West Bond where you're overlooking nothing but wilderness. You can't see anything but wilderness from there. And the sun sets over Garfield Mountain and we're all up there just quietly letting it go dark, sitting and, and reminiscing on the experiences we've already shared together. And we're like, you know, this is so beautiful. If we go get to bed quick, we can get up and be on the next peak for the sunrise and see it on the opposite side. And that's what we did is we're up there and as the sun is coming in, what it's described to me by my friend, Matt Moynihan, went to college with him. He's like, there's this dark mass, pure black. It's the, it's the presidential range. He didn't know it at that point. He's like, and it's slowly starting to gain feature and detail as the sun is getting closer. And as the colors started coming in, he slowly describes a world coming into light. And he's given me rich, vibrant detail because he doesn't know how much to tell me. And I don't need to stop him because he's just so excited for the opportunity. And I think we are on two peaks in the remote wilderness and we watch the opposite ends of the sun, you know, sun, like Fiddler on the Roof, right? Sunrise, sunset. But we got the opposite of it, which is what I like, right? The, the sun sets on lots of things, but the promise of what's coming is right afterwards. And, and that group never got together again. Right? We never hiked together again. We had such a great bonding experience. It was all my old college buddies. Why? We loved it, but you just never know. It may never happen. So it's just a deep appreciation for each moment you're in on each peak. So moving on to Tough Mudder, hmm. that is a course that's mirrored after how they test British Special Forces, a 10-mile event with 20 obstacles which sounds like a nightmare for someone who's blind. You, first of all, were the first blind American to finish one in that international event, and you did three. I did one myself, and I can only imagine how many opportunities there were for you to get hurt or to get frustrated. What were those courses like? Uh, they were hard, um, and they were also joyous because one of the things that you know Will Deans was designing into them was he was a marathon runner and he said the trouble that he experienced in the marathon was everybody was doing their own thing. And he wanted a competition that was designed for everybody to be supporting each other. And I suspect you experienced that in the, in the Tough Mudder, right? Yes, there's no way you could have gotten over those eight foot or 10 foot walls alone. And everybody's trying to help. That's, it's the whole spirit of encouraging and helping and supporting is at the heart of it. And... Uh, uh, so I, I certainly love that, right? It takes the team mantra that I speak so well of, right? It takes that right to practice. But you're right about the risks. But there's something about risk that 
I think people don't consider, right? A lot of times people say, you're such a risk taker. And I say, I, I don't think so. I think I'm a problem solver because I don't want to get hurt. I want to evaluate how can we do this? How can we manipulate the risk to make it more safe, right? I mean, the most dangerous thing most of us do every day is get in a car. So we manipulate the risk, right? We get in a car with a good driver who's hopefully not texting or talking on their phones or doing the things that make them a bad driver, right? That's risk manipulation and similar on the Tough Mudder. What can I do to learn to manipulate the risk? Because one of the risks we do a really bad job of evaluating, we always say, if I do this, this bad thing could happen. What we forget to do is evaluate, if I don't do this, what could happen? And Nothing. Right. A lost opportunity for growth or development or all sorts of positive things. And that lost opportunity is as big a risk as potentially some of the others. That last obstacle, though, there were these dangling electrified wires and a mud pit below. Yeah. And I thought the best way to go through would be to crawl on my stomach uh -huh. because I could obviously clear the distance between the wires that were live and the mud and that space in between. But I was wrong, and it was the last obstacle, and all the crowd is gathered there at the last obstacle because that's where the finish line is. And everyone was laughing, and I was like, mortified there for a little bit. I was frozen on right. the ground. And then I realized I need to stand up and just run the hell to the other end. Sure. Right. It's uh, And even if you're crawling, right, you got to go over the hay bales and they designed those so that you're going to have to be cautious when you go over them to not hit dangling ones. Anyhow, right. That's why there's those hay bales strewn through the middle. They call that the electroshock therapy room. Um, it also keeps you from running because you'll hit those hay bales. Um, the average person gets shocked three times going through that. Right. So that's their anticipation. And, and did you get a jolt? Did you get to? Yes, your, several yeah. times. Yeah. It's, it almost buckles your knees, right? It, yeah. You, you don't want to ever feel that, yeah. but that's what you got to do to get through it. You're right. So I certainly don't love the electroshock therapy. And uh, obviously I can't dodge those lines, right? Because I'm all tactile based and it's so loud. They've got the music blaring, people all around. So I can't even hear my guides. And think about what I'm asking my guide to do, because if they're trying to get me through, they're going to be more prone to hit it. And the way electricity works, if I hit it and I'm touching my guide, guess what? They get the shock, too. Mm -hmm. And for the record, my average shocks is 20 per time throw. Whoa. Yeah. And my, my team, when we were, you know, we got filmed doing the performance once when we went out to L.A. That was they flew us out there. They wanted to really have a video evidence of the experience. And I love it, right? I think it's a great film piece. But my team said, hey, we've done this all together. Let's make a giant conga line and go through together and you lead the way. And I said, I think there's a horrible idea. <laughs> you're all going to get my shocks and you're not going to like it very much. And I'm a, I'm a tall guy, so I'm going to hit all of those. And uh, they're like, well, let's try it. And I remember we were about a quarter of the way through when the last one dropped off me. And I was on my own because... Too many shocks, it like buckles their knees. And and now I'm on my own trying to go through it. And, you know, you just, it's grit and determination, right? And sometimes that's part of the experience is I wouldn't choose that. But I have learned a little bit that grit is how we get through some things. And if that's what it takes, okay. Would I choose that in my world of fun? No, right? I don't want the electroshock therapy. I've proven I can do it. That's not a part I want to do again. Will I skip out? No, because I'm there with a team 
And that team is going to be different. And who am I going to say that you're right? I'm not willing to go through the grit with you. Of course I will. Right. But do I want to? No, that's that. That's my least and only unfavorite part of, of the Tough Mudder. A couple of questions from podcast listeners. Are you in competition with yourself or others? So I think it depends on what the event is. Like I'm playfully and competitive with others in many ways. But what we're really trying to be is the best we can be. And that's you know, so my approach is I want to make myself a better person. So I think the, the honest answer is I'm striving to be competitive with myself. Next question. Do you ever listen to music while you're training? And what type of music would motivate you? So all the time. Uh, and it all depends on what the training session is like as to what the music is. You know, when I, I'm, I'm laughing as I do this because I have an Alexa unit right next to the treadmill that I run on. And when I'm running at what I think is a recovery pace, I will often play quieter music because it's my chance to break down. And Tracy came into the room and I'm running and I'm running at an eight minute mile pace, which is a recovery on the treadmill for me. And I'm listening to show tunes and I'm listening to... Like Broadway tunes? Yeah. And she's like, how can you possibly run to this? <laughs> but it's because I'm singing to them, right? So I'm in a range where my, my, my lungs are capable and it's fun, right? And I'm not using it for rhythm. There's no doubt when I want to run hard, I need the beat of the music to get up to the cadence of my run. And I almost don't care what it is. I mean, I like it when I enjoy the music more, but it's the beat that I'm looking for because I never have that when I'm running on the road. It's only in hard training. So I will play a game where I'll play, you know, I'll, I'll, I better be careful or I'll en enable the Alexa unit, but I'll have it play the top running music from each year and I'll work through, like if I'm doing a 20 mile run, What's top running music from 1980? What's top running music from 1982? And I'll do two songs. So I get two miles per year and I'll work through a decade. Boom, 20 miles. Right. You're also a New England Patriots season ticket holder. You've been since the 1980s. And you're known as a super fan. When I walked into your living room, it's a shrine to the Pats. And in 2001, you were named Fan of the Year. In 2002, you were inducted as a fan into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. What were those years like? And also share your memories with Teddy Bruschi, who you developed a special friendship with. You know, it's funny being the, the super fan. What does that mean? I yell well, right? Uh, I, I didn't know it was coming. So here's the first thing. It's, it's one of the lessons I suggest is invest in things you do, right? Be engaged, be involved, be passionate. And... In that pursuit, when I was trying to learn how to get better at using the computer, I designed a Patriots website way back in 1996. And I did it because I was trying to practice using screen reader technology to learn how to use a computer better. And I was just, what do I want to use as a topic? This will be the practice. But that's the year they went to a Super Bowl. So as the year went on, you know, I had a playful Modi's doghouse, which was, you know, my dog's way of saying who didn't play well that week. And I wrote previews and reviews. My page became very popular. The more successful the season went, it got more popular so that when it got to be the time for the Super Bowl, the playoffs, I was getting 2000 hits a day, which in 96 was incredible. My ISP warned me, you know, we know what's happening. You're okay for now, but if this continues, they're going to they're going to kick you off because that's the way it worked back in 1996. You got too successful. Correct. And at that point, I built up a big community of followers to my page. It was very popular. So when 2001 came around, 
turned out to be another great season, though we didn't know what was going to happen, one of my friends went behind my back. And again, just the beauty of building community, building friendships, treating people well and right, usually is going to be a reward in many ways. Just, just the gift of those friendships. But, you know, she went, Melissa, Melissa French went around to all my friends and said, hey, they have this new award. It's the fan of the year. And can you think of anybody more deserving? You have to write an essay nominating him. So they all wrote essays in. When I got the award, the, the team told me the Mastrangelo family runs that award. They said they'd never received as many essays as they got from me. That's so, wonderful. That's a testament to your reach, your friendships. It's absolutely a testament to the friendships I keep, right? And I, I love that I have that many great people in my world. So, total shock to me. I actually hung up on the first phone call, right? It was sponsored by Fleet Magnet. <laughs> They're like, hey, you know, this is such and such bank. And, you know, I just bought this house in 1998. So, you know, you get these mortgage calls all the time. And I'm like, no, thank you. And I started to hang up and I realized that they'd asked for Zip, which was my nickname. And as a sort, sort of anonymity, I had made it the Zip's Patriots page, right? I, I didn't use my real name back then. And I'm like, wait a second, the bank wouldn't be asking for me by nickname. So I, I picked the call back up and said, what can I do for you? And, um, and it's funny, Teddy gave me the award on the field. The last game, they were going to demolish the stadium after the game, except it turned out there was going to be another game. There was going to be a playoff game there. And he's holding the uh, trophy. It's a pretty heavy trophy I have out there. And he's like, Zip, tell this film crew to get going uh, because if I hold this trophy any longer, I won't be able to play. But uh, that was you know, just one of the fun things of him giving to me. Teddy and I's life crossed in other interesting ways, right? Obviously, that year was magical. I got to go with the team to the Super Bowl where they won their first Super Bowl. Uh, incredible experiences. But Teddy's journey, I think, is more powerful. So he had a stroke, of course. And when he had his stroke, he had trouble walking and trouble seeing. And at that point in time, I was totally blind and in the wheelchair. And we had built a friendship, which was fan-based, but had gotten stronger every year. And we got to communicate about, right, how do you deal with adversity? And, you know, think about this world-class athlete, but he's still a young guy. And he's still facing one of the biggest challenges of his life. And, you know, we talked a lot about what he was going through. And he's got a great book out there called Never Give Up. He certainly gives me some nice credit, but he speaks to his own resiliency in the process of how he managed. But fast forward to when he retires from football. And he's going to do this project. He's going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro to help raise awareness on this whole notion of ability awareness. And he's like, who better to teach me how to hike? Will you teach me? I'm like, oh, so wait a second, you're going to go climb the tallest standalone mountain in the world and you're asking a blind guy from New Hampshire <laughs> to teach you. I asked him, right, any of your friends give you a hard time about this? Any of your former players? He's like, you bet. But you know what? You know how to hike. You know a little bit about adversity. And we have spent time building a relationship, a communication, understanding. I'm like, oh, I get it. I didn't ask you this until we were on the trail. I'm not trying to talk you out of it. And we get to hike and we went out and hiked in the Belknap Range here in New Hampshire. And we had just this wonderful, magical day, you know, including, you know, at one moment he, he had taken the lead. We were trying to teach him about reading some trail signs. And he, uh, he came running back because there was this deep sound, which I recognize as a partridge taking off. But he thought was a bear. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty funny. And, you know, his kids had given him one assignment. He, he could not come home if he didn't get a picture of moose poop as he put it so uh, we were in fact able to find scat for him so he did get his picture but I, I think my favorite part of that whole hike wasn't his tug of war with the mighty Quinn although we have we have it captured on YouTube 
Teddy talking about playing tug up on top of a mountain with Quinn. We have the video of the tug and Teddy's interview. They're, they're really worth, they're worth watching. But we're at the fire tower, climb up, and there's a guest book. And as Teddy's signing the, the guest book, the ranger says, you look a lot like Teddy Bruschi. And he's like, oh, I get that all the time. And we continue on out. That's the best line for a celebrity. It was fantastic. It was good. He's a, he's a good guy. You know what I like about him is that he's a good human, not just a great athlete. Um, you know, just to, to share a story, I've had a lot of interactions. I got an email from a friend of mine who lives in Houston, and there was a, a house fire burned. The whole family, all their pets got out. Everybody was safe. But the whole house, everything was destroyed. One thing survived, and it was a picture of Teddy Bruski's throwing the snow into the air after the snowball. Most of the pictures burned, but the picture of Teddy, like an area around that was all charred. That was the only thing not destroyed in the picture. Huh. And they sent me the picture of that destroyed rubble. <laughs> and they just thought it was great that Teddy's the only thing that survived the fire. <laughs> so I forwarded the email to Teddy because I don't send him everything that people send, but I forwarded it over to him. He's fireproof. I never hear anything back, you know, from Teddy or anything on it, but... About two months later, I get an email from the guy. You're not going to believe this. Teddy researched the family and autographed a brand new version of that picture to the entire family, including the pets. Didn't ask, just sent to them. Just here you go. Bring a little light into their lives. Exactly. So July was Disability Pride Month. And today, one in four Americans lives with some type of disability. So advocating for the rights of the disabled is really the right thing to do. But if we need another reason, we need to realize that any one of us can be disabled, either temporarily or permanently because of our illness or our age or some injury that we have. So in that regard, we all have a stake in protecting and expanding the rights of the disabled. And I know I've read, too, that one of the leading causes of blindness and low vision, or some of the causes are like age-related diseases, macular degeneration, cataracts, diabetic retinopathy, and glaucoma. What additional public policy initiatives does our country need to work toward to make life with a disability less challenging? That's a great question. And you're absolutely right. Age-related macular degeneration is the number one cause of blindness. Right. Uh, founded our charity in 2010. There were 4.4 million blind people living in the United States, and there are 32 million today, uh, eight times higher because the baby boomers are hitting the age where that's happening. Um, so that said, what policies? You know, I think rather than giving specific policies, because right, we could we could spend a lot of time highlighting them. I think we need a philosophy. Right. We need a vision that guides how we're going to approach these things, which is just simple, common sense practices about kindness and acceptability, right? Accessibility, excuse me, right? Kindness and accessibility should guide how we approach what is fair, what is equitable. And that's for all things, right? Whether it's somebody's ethnicity, religion, disability, we want all people to have a fair and equal access to work together as a community to make our world better. Because if you don't, we're either saying that we want to do away with them or we want to carry them as a burden. And why not work with them by just finding ways to make things equitable and accessible? What charities are important to you and how can the public help you? So I certainly have my own 2020 Vision Quest, which, you know, I, I love what we do. 
Half of all the proceeds we raise go to Future Insight, which trains providing the skills and services that let people who are blind or sight impaired learn how to live independently, to manage all the skills. That's, that's how I learned how to use a cane and all the, the basic, how do you cook? How do you clean? How do you take care of yourself? Eventually, how do you do the skills to let you go back to work so that you can be independent? I wanna make sure that the skills that I was taught are always there for that, that large growing population of people who have sight impairments. So that's why we give half of our funds to them. The other half we give to Guide Dogs for the Blind. And while we're raising all that money, we speak to students about education and programs about right, how, do you, how do you communicate? How do you lead? How do you believe in possibility and problem solve? And most of all, how will we all manage the adversity we're going to face, not in despair, but in hope as a catalyst for growth? And we've spoken, like I said, to almost 100,000 students in schools since we've been working at this. If it wasn't for COVID, we'd be there, but we're just about to launch a whole series of programs that'll let us reach the entire country with this now that we're in a more virtual-based world anyhow. So is that dear to me? You bet. But the most dear charity to me of all is the one that people are passionate about. Sure, I believe in what we're doing. Come check it out. And if you believe too, great, but be involved. There are so many worthy causes. Find the one that resonates for you and lend a little bit of time, a little bit of energy. And if you have the funds, then sure, that too. But by being passionate and involved, you're gonna help yourself on your way to helping people and causes that could really need it. What are some of your future goals? Huh. Boy, there's so many. First off, I want to finish this transition so that our school education program really is available as a legacy for, for people everywhere. And that's, that's a massive transition to our, to our website. Um, we want to be starting rolling it out in September. Along with that, I have a long overdue children's book that I want to get out this year. Along with that, I want to, you know, I have the Boston Marathon that I'm going to run, but as I've been training so hard this year in different conditions, my speed has come up tremendously and I have a really long shot goal that says if I can get to a sub three hour marathon, could I get to the Paralympics as a marathon runner? And it's a long shot, but you know what? I like long shots because that's, you, you can't, you can't reach a goal you don't strive for. Your life is a long shot. I, uh, you know, when I wrote my book, I, I thought, you know, a lot of people could see this in the fiction category. And the beauty is, it is all the experiences that are real, because I take wishes, I take dreams, and I add a plan to them, and they become goals. And most of them, surprise, surprisingly enough, become achievable with just a little resiliency, perseverance, hard work. My last question is, why aren't you negative? How are you so positive? So first, I want to own that sometimes I'm negative too, right? I think the idea that I'm always positive is not fair. And it's not, I don't want to portray that because then people think that, you know, boy, do I aspire to, should I aspire to be always positive? I think it's unrealistic. I get up some days and they're hard. You know, I, I joke sometimes, you know, oh, blind again today, really? <laughs> But the truth is, absolutely, I have hard days, I get frustrating moments. And it's what you choose to do with it. How long do you want to linger in that bad moment? The choice is yours. The choice is mine when I face it. And sometimes I catch myself being a little you know, disgruntled and choosing. I need to, I want to sit and mire in this a little longer. And I don't relish that when I choose that, but I do sometimes. And as quick as I can, I start to say, okay, here's the thing. 
right? Nelson Mandela used to have a quote, roughly, right? Don't judge a person by how many times they fall down, judge them by how many times they get back up. Well, I don't want to judge people at all, right? That's why I don't love the quote. I like the quote. And what I really want to know is how do you get back up? How do you start moving in positive directions? And I think it's the way you do a journey of a thousand miles. You take small steps and build momentum. So if I'm having a tough day, what's the first positive thing I can put in front of me? Gratitude's a great way to start because when you start thinking about what do I have to be grateful about and you start looking, it's hard to be down when you're having an appreciative moment. And if you can't find that, then build one. You know what? I love a good cup of coffee. So maybe that's a morning for a fresh cup of coffee or a French press coffee. Or maybe if you need a little help, right? You reach out to a friend and you communicate clearly. Right? I call, I call my friend Rob Weber and say, I'm having a tough day. I'm trying to get positive momentum. Can you tell me something good in your life to get me started? Right? Some of my friends don't respond. They might, they might choose to just vent or rant, which isn't what I want. That's not getting me in a positive direction. Don't immerse yourself in negativity when you're trying to go positive. Is there anything else you wanted to add that I didn't bring up? You know, I, I just one last thing. Right? Diary of a Nation our, our nation is so beautiful, but it is kind of like we started with my parents, right? They were fractured when my, when my sister died. And we are a little fractured right now. We are divisive. And there's a lot of opportunity to get healing. And I believe so much in the powers of that healing. But if we focus on the fractured points and the divisive points, we can continue to deepen that divide. And it's okay to have differences. I'm going to be blind. I'm going to be tall, right? And if that's a problem, we can focus on that and it's not going to make it different. And I'm not saying avoid issues that are real, but you've got to build trust slowly. Start with all the unifying things. What are the positive things we hope to, want to accomplish? And build our trust from there as we work towards the harder topics slowly and in smaller steps so that we have the tools in place to handle them. And then we can be working together to bridge those divides as opposed to digging them deeper. Randy's Charity funds services for the visually impaired. Learn more at visionquest2020.org. Look for the Amazon Prime documentary, now available, Four More Feet. It follows Randy as he and his guide dog, Quinn, hike all 48 of New Hampshire's 4,000-foot mountains in a single winter. Do you have a compelling story? Or do you know someone I should interview? Drop me a line at diaryofanation at gmail.com. Please tell a friend to listen to. That's how we grow our audience and continue podcasting. Find Diary of a Nation through your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Diary of a Nation. Diary of a Nation.